listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Gospel of Luke for some time now, and Lane has read the text just to catch you up on the context. Where have we been in the Gospel of Luke? We know that Luke was writing to a gentleman named Theophilus, and he wanted Theophilus to be convinced of who Jesus Christ was. He wanted him to be convinced of the finished work of Jesus Christ. He stated that right from the beginning, and then Luke begins this process of giving us a lot of detail about the birth of Christ, but then he gives us two sections about the ministry of Christ. And we've mentioned it several times before. The first 18 months take us up to Luke chapter 9, toward the end of Luke chapter 9. And Jesus is in ending a phase of his ministry where he's been training his disciples, but now he's going to begin sending them out. And the second 18 months of ministry begins with Jesus moving from where they were to Jerusalem. Jesus sets his face, the text of Scripture says, like a flint. He's going to Jerusalem. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. In our text today, we finally get to that place that Jesus has been pushing for now for his three years of ministry. Jesus is going to court. Jesus is going to to trial. I want to go back in chapter 2 to verse number 63, and I want to pick up, first of all, on his incarceration. Secondly, after we look at his incarceration, I want you to see that Luke is driving the reader of the text to understand who Jesus is. And so he takes a deep dive into the identity of Jesus Christ. He wants Theophilus to think about that. He wants you and me to think about that. Who is Jesus Christ? So his identity, and then when we begin in chapter 23 and verse 1, Luke wants the reader to walk away convinced that Jesus is completely innocent. When we look at Barabbas, what we've got to understand is that while Jesus was completely innocent, they released a guilty man. I want to tell you this morning that you are not Jesus in the text, and I am not Jesus in the text. None of us here this morning is an innocent individual. In fact, every one of us here in this room today is Barabbas. You need to go look in the mirror and come to grips with that fact. In other words, Jesus was completely innocent, and Barabbas was as guilty as a person could possibly be, but Jesus died, and Barabbas was set free. And if you and I will trust the finished work of Jesus Christ, while we are as guilty as Barabbas, we can be as innocent as Jesus when we trust in his death for our sin. And so we look at the innocence of Jesus Christ and its implication not only for uh, Barabbas and for the sake of the gospel and the history of Christianity, but we look at the innocence of Jesus Christ and how it impacts everything that we do in how we see ourselves and how we relate to other people. And so I hope you can grasp that reality here this morning as we uh, take the time to consider the text of Scripture. The first thing I want you to see 
is his incarceration. Go back, if you will, to verse number 63. In fact, if you will, go back to verse number 54 and let me um, try to pick up where they have seized Jesus. It says in Luke twenty-two fifty-four, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. We come down to verse 63 because the section beginning in verse 55 deals with Peter's denial of our Lord and him going out and weeping bitterly. And then we pick right back up with um, Jesus and his incarceration. And it says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. They are holding Jesus Christ in custody. Jesus is a, 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 a man who could have called, the song says, 10,000 angels. He could have called enough armaments. He could have called enough people, enough resources in to set him free. So Jesus, while he's there, and it seems like he's in custody, and it seems like they have seized him, Jesus is there of his own free will. He has surrendered willfully to those who would kill him, to those who would beat him. And this seems to be an angry crowd. It seems to be an angry crowd. They're, they're so um, excited about hitting him over and over and over again and feeling the power of pummeling and trying to shred, literally shred the flesh of not only an innocent man but a helpless man at this point by his own will and subjugating himself to that. The truth of the matter is this, though, that the man who was arrested and put to death will arrest and put death to death that we might not have to suffer death. And that's good news this morning. I want you to go back to Luke 18, and, and I want you to ask yourself, am I like the disciples? Luke 18, verse 32, because Jesus in Luke 18 and verse 32 predicts exactly what's happening here in this text in Luke 22, beginning in uh, verse number 63. Luke 18, 32, listen to God's word. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will arise. Jesus is telling the disciples exactly what is going to happen. And this is the fulfillment of what he said was going to happen. Look at verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what he said. And so now they're staring face to face at exactly what Jesus said would happen and it's happening right before our very eyes. So what happens in Jesus' incarceration? Three things. Number one, uh, they beat him in verse number 63. They beat him. They mocked him, the text says, which means they ridiculed him. They made fun of him. They scoffed at him. Nobody likes to be made fun of. Jesus Christ did not deserve to be made fun of. And it's, 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 it's so ironic, it's so incredible that the very man who came to die for those who would sin against him and kill him are being made fun of by them. They mocked him. They made fun of him. Secondly, they beat him. The word beat there in the text, the word strike there in the text is a word that, that means that these men are using the full force of their blows and their implements to try to shred, to try to 
um, remove the skin of Jesus Christ, to bruise him and to harm him. These were not gentle slaps. These men were engaging their core as they hit Jesus and then putting all of their strength into the blows. So this is a, a serious matter. Jesus is experiencing a great pain. We also see not only that they beat him, but the text says they blindfolded him. The word blindfold means to be covered all around. They either blindfolded him like Zorro was blindfolded, or they took a bag or a sack or some form of covering and put it over his head so that he couldn't see anything around him and probably couldn't see light and probably couldn't see a blow coming to his head. And again, they are striking him. They're striking him recklessly and mercilessly, and they want to inflict pain. And so here is the, the most innocent man, Jesus Christ, the God man, perfectly innocent, perfectly God, perfectly human. And here are these sinful men that are just filled with anger and filled with rage. And all of a sudden they're doing everything that they can to wind up with all of their strength. And you can just see it as they wind up to hit Jesus and give him a haymaker and they land solidly and they feel so good and Jesus wasn't expecting it. And you can hear him groan and you can see his head snap to the side and you can begin to see blood soaking through that cloth and probably saliva and the pain that our Lord is in. It's real. It's real. And Luke puts it here because he wants us to understand what Jesus went through. And he wants us to understand the gravity and the weight and the magnitude of sin. It's not a trivial matter. They're telling Jesus to prophesy. You say you're a man of God, prophesy. Tell us who hit you, Jesus. They're making fun of who Jesus said he was. And certainly Jesus could. Jesus knew every one of them that did it. And then verse 65 says they blasphemed him. They, they refused to grant Jesus Christ the respect that he deserved. They, they assigned um, a treatment and they assigned their attitude and perspective of Jesus that was inconsistent with his nature and character. They blasphemed him the Son of God. And so we see his incarceration. But secondly, verses 66 to 71, we see his identity. And if you'll look at that text, and I'll read it. It says, When the day came, verse 66, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said... I think it's interesting as we look at those verses that we just read. We see um, the prosecution... All of the religious elite have gathered to prosecute Jesus Christ. All of those who represent God, those who have God's word, those who have God's word, those who have the chief priests, those who have the guys who wear the, 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 the funny suits and they understand everything about God's word. They are the final say. They are the representatives of Christ here on earth. Not only do they have God's word, but then they've got these people that study God's word. They've got these people that interpret God's word. They've got these people that write these books about God's word. And this is the prosecution. As we read through the text this morning, we see it over and over again. These people are so excited. They are giddy about bringing charges against Jesus, and they are giddy, they are excited, they feel like this is their moment, and, and they're, they're overwhelmed and obsessed with bringing Jesus to a place of convicting him so that they can murder him. So we see this prosecution. They already had the verdict. Now they need the evidence. You know, you know a system is corrupt, and there are many corrupt 
systems, we see the inevitable abuse of institutional power in government, in religion, at the P, in the PTA, at the Moose Lodge. I mean, it's everywhere, this, this, this inevitable abuse of institutional power. And inevitable abuse of institutional power says, this is the outcome we want. Now, now let us manipulate the system to get the desired outcome. This is what's going on here. They wanted Jesus dead. They wanted Jesus out of their way. And all they needed was to try to find evidence to support the verdict. That's the prosecution. We see, secondly, in verse 67, the interrogation. They say, if you're the Christ, tell us. And this is what Luke intends for the reader to see and focus on. If you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus does tell them. But what they're asking is a question that they themselves have not fully answered. If you are the Christ, the word Christ there, they, they mean by that question, if you are the Messiah, please tell us. They expected the Messiah. The general concept of Messiah to the Jewish people at this particular time was this, that Messiah was a human being endowed with extraordinary capabilities for leadership and holiness. They were not looking for a Messiah named Jesus who claimed to be God. That is not what they were looking for. And that is exactly what Jesus came doing. So we see the prosecution in verse 66. We, we see the interrogation in verse 67. And that's a question that we need to begin to think about. Who is Jesus? And then we see the declaration in verses 67 to 69. Look at it if you will. If you are the Christ, tell us the second half of verse 67. But he said to them, listen to his declaration. If I tell you, you will not believe. Now, first of all, that is an indictment of them. He essentially is saying, hey, let me tell you something about you. You are not believers. Here is Almighty God, the judge who knows everything, and he knows their hearts, and he looks at them and he says, if you had the truth and it slapped you right upside the head, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. There are those that walk in churches every Sunday and they hear messages about the man Jesus Christ. They go back out into the world and everything in the world does everything that it can, even in the church, even in liberal churches, even in liberal seminaries, even in commentaries that abound, that, uh, that attack the deity of Jesus Christ. There are plenty of folks that come and sit and listen and love the fact that Jesus is a good moral man and probably Christianity offers some form of order in society, but they're not willing to come to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You don't believe, and you need to believe. Jesus said, if I told you, you wouldn't believe it because you are not believers. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you what you want. Somebody bring the silver platter. Here it is. Jesus is fixing to serve it up. I'm going to give you what you want on a silver platter. But from now on, the Son of Man, he's making reference to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which makes reference to the Son of Man. And he's claiming and saying that he is the Son of Man, that he is very God of God. But from now on, the Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, shall be seated, Psalm 110, verse number 1, at the right hand of the power of God. And so we see in this declaration Jesus is telling them exactly who he is he tells them 
his person, I am the Son of Man. He tells them his posture, that he is sharing and judging and reigning. And when Jesus makes this statement, let us make no mistake about what he is saying, he is making the unmistakable claim of equality with God. And that is exactly what they wanted him to say. That is exactly what they wanted him to say. Verse 70, so they said, are you the son of God then? Are you the son of God then? <laughs> this is interesting as we watch Law and Order and we've got the detectives in the room with Jesus and the prosecutor maybe is standing outside the two-way glass looking in. And they're beginning to press him. And they're wondering if he's going to lawyer up. And they're, they're wondering if he's going to answer their questions. They're wondering if he's just going to elude them with all of his mastery and all of his wisdom. And then before they get five minutes into the questioning and maybe the good cop, bad cop routine, after they've beaten him and he's bloodied and probably missing some teeth and can't talk clearly, Jesus all of a sudden now, after he's all bruised up and looks nothing like anything but a lamb that was slain standing, Revelation chapter 5. Jesus then tells them what they want to hear. They're shocked. <laughs> They're shocked. I'm the son of man and I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the father and I'm going to rule and reign with him. It's shocking. They look at each other. I can't believe he just gave us all of the evidence that we need. They probably go back out and talk to the prosecutor. Is that what we need? Can we get him on this? They come back in and they're so excited. They make sure the recorder is on this time as they begin to question Jesus. And you see it in the text as they come back, verse 70. So they, they all said, are you the son of God then? This is a high and holy moment for the church, the synagogue, the chief priests, the scribes. You say that I am. They said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it for ourselves from his own lips. Outside the two-way mirror, there's high fives. We've got an ironclad case. We got him. This dude's going down. He's getting the death penalty. We don't need to worry anymore about this man named Jesus. We are fixing to put him away. They all meet over at the 30 pieces of silver cafe. Not the $3 cafe. To celebrate victory. They have a conviction. The criminal is now exactly where they want him. Why is this here? Why did Luke put this here and what Luke wants us to see and what Luke wants to do in our heart and our mind as we read this gospel is he wants to take us back to Luke chapter 9 and verse number 20. And every one of us needs to answer this question from Luke chapter 9 and verse number 20. Verse 18 of Luke chapter 9. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do, who, um, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, the Christ of God. 
The thing that Luke wants us to see is not only this incarceration of Jesus and how brutal it was, but he wants us to come face to face with the identity of Jesus. And he wants us to ask ourselves, who do we say that Jesus is? Is he just some criminal? Is he some guy that's just been beaten to a pulp? Is, is he some, some guy that's been living for 36 months in some fairy tale? Who is he? Who is he? Every single person on the face of the planet has to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? And, and I compel you, I beg you this morning, stand before that question. It, it is driven out of the text. Who is Jesus Christ? But we must go back to the text to let the text answer that question for us. Or maybe we're smarter than the text. Maybe we're smarter than God. Maybe we're smarter than Jesus who do you say that I am? C.S. Lewis said, I'm not trying here to prevent anyone. I'm not trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. The one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who is Jesus Christ? What is his identity? Of this we are all certain. And of this we must all be certain. And we must not only read this question here. But we must settle this question in our heart, every single one of us. I close this section on his identity by fast-forwarding to Acts chapter 2 and verse number 36. Jesus is alive. Jesus has been risen from the grave. And they're having a question about the identity of Jesus Christ. And so if you look at Acts chapter 2... Um, let us understand that getting the identity of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. Acts chapter 2, verse number 36. Peter is standing up, and on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching the first message to the gathered people there. And he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both, talking about Jesus, the resurrected Christ, has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Is there any question about the identity of Jesus Christ? Well, these folks went through a struggle when Jesus died, especially the guy that's preaching this message. But now he's standing up before the crowd that's gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and he's proclaiming this message to them. This Jesus this, that you're wondering about, that you're trying to identify, he is both the Lord and he is the Christ. Now, look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what is he saying? He's saying when you come to grips with the reality of who Jesus Christ is, it changes everything about your life. He is both Lord and he is Christ. And here are the people that crucified him. Here are the people that stood in the crowd that we're going to read about that said, crucify away with this man. They were angry. Now Jesus is alive. And they're like, wait a minute. If Jesus Christ is alive, if Jesus Christ defeated death, if Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, if Jesus Christ is coming back and I do not recognize him and worship him as Lord, I'm in a heap of trouble now. And so I ask you, who is Jesus Christ? Who do you believe Jesus Christ to be? And I offer you one option. He is Lord, He is Christ, He is God, He is our only hope, He is the Savior of the world, and if you believe in Him, you can have eternal life, but if you reject Him and don't believe in Him, you will spend eternity separated from Him, and all that is life. We see His identity. Finally, we see His innocence, and Lane read this passage this morning. There's some interesting cycles in this passage But I think the thing that Luke wants the reader to be driven to see in this text is not only the identity of Jesus Christ, who is Jesus Christ, and you come face to face with who Jesus Christ is. But I think the thing that that Luke wants the reader to see in this text is that Jesus is completely innocent. In fact, Luke wants wants us to see that so resoundingly that what he does is he gives us three instances where you've got these political leaders that don't believe in God, that are not Jews, that don't understand the Bible, but these people are looking objectively as objectively as Jesus Christ could be looked at. And they're looking at him and saying, I find no fault in this man. He is not guilty. Three times. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. That's important. That's important. The first thing we see as we look at the innocence of Jesus Christ is the faults accusations. Look at verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose. They're excited. They've gotten this confession out of Jesus. Their, their, their energy level is up as if they'd just taken an energy drink. They're, they're, they're just, their hearts are racing quickly. They feel like everything's about to get back to the way it used to be before this Jesus guy came on the scene and they're going to get back the people that left and are following him. And then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him before Pilate. And as they were accusing him, they said, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is is Christ, a king. So there are these accusations. And they're trying to convince Pilate, of course, that Jesus poses a threat to the nation. Uh, I would just stop and say this to you. Beware of being so for or against something that you become irrational, that you manipulate every piece of evidence to support your inaccurate conclusion. Most of us don't hold to rational, reasonable conclusions based on objective evidence. We form, we formulate a conclusion and then collect supporting data to solidify our conclusion. We get a hunch, we get a feeling, we get a premonition, and then we gather our evidence and set it in concrete This is the conclusion that we wanted before we ever began having the conversation. And now we've collected the evidence to draw our conclusion. And this is exactly what these religious leaders were doing. 
But we also see not only the false accusations, but beginning in verse 3, and there is other conversation if you look at the synoptic gospels, at the the gospels that kind of go along with uh, the gospel of Luke. Uh, Matthew and Mark have these accounts in some form. Some uh, they've extrapolated. They've given you more information. Luke doesn't want to give you that information, not because Luke is missing the information, but because Luke is making a different point, writing to a different audience. And, and the point that Luke wants us to see is the innocence of Jesus Christ. And, and, and so we come to verse 3, and Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, again, offering more accusations. They were not going to accept a not guilty verdict. Pilate then sends him to Herod. He heard that Herod was in town, and he sends him over to Herod. And if you'll go to verse 10, the chief priest and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Again, we see that again. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Again, the full force of their blows against a man whose face, maybe the the white blood cells had started to work, and maybe some of the blood was beginning to clot. Maybe some of the wounds were beginning to cover up or to, 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 uh, to close up or to stop bleeding. But all of a sudden now they start abusing our Lord again. Then arraying him in splendor closing, he sent him back to Pilate and Herod. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. For before this, they had an enmity with each other. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I find this man. Man, I, I do not find. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. If you go to verse number twenty-two, we see uh, the same thing a third time. He came to them. Why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. So we see Pilate's determination. Jesus Christ was completely innocent. And Jesus Christ had to be innocent. Let me share just a few verses with you that speak to the innocence of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 15 states that, states it clearly, and here's what I want you to understand, that apart from the innocence of Jesus Christ, you have no hope. You will spend eternity separated from a holy God. You and I are dead in our trespasses and sins apart from the innocence of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 15. Listen to what God's word says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That is, that is critical. There, if Jesus Christ is not without sin, there is no sacrifice for sin. You say, how, how do you come to that conclusion? If Jesus Christ has sin, he can't be a sacrifice for sin. He has got to die for his own sin. But if Jesus is perfect and without sin, then he can be accepted by the Holy Father as a sacrifice for those of us who are sinners. That's the whole picture of the entire Old Testament system. That's the whole picture of the Passover. What are you looking for? You're looking for a lamb without spot or blemish. And so it's 
beyond clear that an innocent lamb is necessary for our salvation. But, hey, let me tell you, if there is an innocent lamb who dies for your sin in your place, then your salvation is completed by his work, not yours. Let us understand that today. And that changes everything about our life. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 19. Listen to what God's word says. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without, without blemish or spot. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 22. He himself, let me see if I can find it. I've got ink all over my Bible. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If Jesus had sinned, he would have deserved his wounds. He would have been paying for his own sin. And so Jesus Christ is without sin. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 5, again, listen to what God's word says about Jesus Christ. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And just to be clear, John wants us to know, and in him there is no sin. If there was sin in him, he could not take away sin. And so Luke wants the reader to understand the complete innocence of Jesus Christ. When we come to verse 18, what we see in this story of Barabbas or in this accounting of Barabbas is we see a man who is completely guilty exchanged for a man who is completely innocent. And let us be clear as we look at the text of Scripture. It is the exchange of a guilty man for an innocent man. You can see more about the Barabbas narrative in Matthew 27 verses 15 to 23. But let us understand that Christ came and he gave himself, 1 Peter 3.18, the just for the unjust. Who is the just? Jesus is the just. He's giving himself the just for the unjust. Who is unjust? Barabbas is unjust. Is anybody here just? Is anybody here just? Is anybody here perfectly righteous? We've, we've, got, to, we've got to have that conversation. We've got to have that conversation. It also tells us that Christ is the just and the justifier in Romans chapter 3 and verses 21 to 26. Jesus Christ is just, but through his work for those that will believe in him, they are made just by his work as the justifier. This is critical for us to understand and connected to the innocence of Jesus Christ. At the end of it all, with all that Pilate was saying with all that Herod said, these official voices that, that could declare somebody guilty or innocent, the crowd prevailed and they said, condemn this man, Jesus Christ. And they were gladly willing for an innocent man to be killed while a guilty man went free. Let me just try to draw some conclusions and give you some things that I think you can take home, not only as it relates to your eternal destiny, but as it relates to our relationship with each other, our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with our children, our relationship to people in the body of Christ. Number one, as I close, number one, who is Jesus Christ? I tell you this morning that you must answer 
that question. If he is not God, if he is not perfect God, then you are doomed. If that is not his identity, and if that is not who you identify Jesus Christ as, you, you have no forgiveness for sins. You have no one to stand in your place before a holy God, whereby God will pour his wrath out on his son and set you free. But we see that beautiful picture here in this text this morning. Holy God will accept nothing less than a perfect sacrifice for our sin. And Jesus Christ alone is the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice and, and because he is fully human and only a man can die for the sins of men and he is fully God, therefore making him perfect and only a human being who is fully perfect by the power of God can satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God. Jesus Christ is our only hope. So you must answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? And he must be properly identified. And once he is properly identified, he must be worshipped. He must be believed in. Christ alone and not our righteousness or good works make us right with holy God. So who is Jesus Christ? But secondly, Jesus Christ alone is innocent. Jesus Christ alone is innocent. Now this is, this is important. This is important. It's important for right now. It's important for how you relate to the person sitting beside you. It's important for how you look at people around you. It's critically important. Jesus Christ alone is innocent. Can, can, you, can you repeat that with me? Jesus Christ alone is innocent. Right? Let's say it again. Jesus Christ alone is innocent. Let me just remind you in light of that. We are not Jesus Christ, and we are not innocent. You understand? We are not Jesus Christ, and we are not innocent. The third thing we see, first of all, who is Jesus Christ? Secondly, Jesus Christ alone is innocent. Thirdly, Barabbas is a filthy, dirty, despicable criminal. He is guilty. He is a murderer. As bad as bad could be, you've got these two complete opposites. And the people are saying, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. What do I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. Kill the innocent man. Give us the guilty man. And the guilty man was able to be set free because of the death of the innocent man. There was that exchange that took place. I am not Jesus and neither are you, but we are Barabbas. And if that offends you, I am not sorry. <laughs> I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be belligerent. But if you would say, well, I'm offended at that association. Well, then who are you? Who are you? Or who do you think you are? Just as we say Jesus Christ alone is innocent, we must look in the mirror and say, I am not innocent. I am not Jesus. I am Barabbas. And this is critical to salvation. This is critical to Christian living. This is critical to relating in marriage and parenting and in church. I would say this. Stop acting like you are Jesus and everyone else is Barabbas. Don't we do that? Stop acting like you are Jesus and everyone else 
is Barabbas. Barabbas. Stop leaving others in their guilt under the burden of your accusations and obsessions while you presume your self-righteous superiority and innocence. We must come to grips with the significance of our guilt, our identity as Barabbas, before we can appreciate the innocence of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was innocent and punished in the place of a guilty man, we can be set free from our guilt and live as innocent men before a holy God. And that should make us into new people. Let me say that again. Because Jesus was innocent and punished in the place of a guilty man, we can be set free from our guilt and live as innocent men before a holy God. Only Jesus Christ is innocent. We must identify as Barabbas in need of someone to die in our place. But when we accept the fact that an innocent man died in our place for our sin, then we can wake up in that moment and stand before a holy God as though we were innocent, as innocent as Jesus Christ is. But we're not going to get there by performing. We're not going to get there by good works. We're not going to get there through personal holiness. And it's only that understanding of the innocence of Jesus Christ and us being as guilty at least as Barabbas is and that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sin and we stand in that innocence that that innocence doesn't create arrogance and division and I'm better than you or I'm more spiritual than you or I'm more holy than you. What it does is it creates this beautiful unity among a people who understand who they are in Christ and their innocence before God is a great gift and all of a sudden it brings us to our knees and it creates this beautiful worship and unity and humility. Reading this book, I probably shouldn't tell you. Somebody might not like it. It's by a guy named Philip Yancey, and it's Where the Light Fell, and it's his memoir. It's, uh, he's 71, and he grew up in this highly religious home where his mother um, and father were married, and they had these two little boys, but his dad was at Grady Hospital in an iron lung as a kid. And all of a sudden, they felt like the Lord led them to take the dad out of the iron lung. He was going to be okay. They took him out of the iron lung. A few days later, the dad died. The couple, Philip Yancey's parents, both wanted to be missionaries. They wanted to serve God. His dad wanted to be and was a preacher. But now his dad is dead. The mom has got two boys to take care of. And so the mom said, I am Hannah. I'm Hannah, and what I'm going to do as Hannah is I'm going to take these two boys, and Lord, I'm going to give them to you, and these two boys are going to be missionaries. And he said they moved from place to place, and their life was just up and down materially, but their mother in public was one of the most beautiful and amazing people in all the world. But at home, everything was turmoil. It was turmoil. He said his mother was in this movement called the Victorious Life Movement. And in the Victorious Life Movement, people felt like that if they followed certain principles, that they could be without sin. And she thought she was without sin. So anytime an argument came up, anytime a disagreement came up, anytime a problem came up, mom wins every argument, mom wins every battle, mom's always right, and Yancey goes on to say, how could someone who's never worn lipstick, who's never worn slacks, who's never polished her nails, who, who teaches Bible all the time, who goes to church every time the doors are open, and who hasn't sinned in 12 years, how could someone like that ever be wrong? He said, my mom never says she's sorry. 
she never says she's wrong. Why? Because she's so righteous. She's so innocent. And everybody else is so guilty. Folks, Jesus is innocent. We're not. And we're able to stand before a holy God because the innocent Jesus Christ laid down his life for you and for me. And we can't be running around. You see, when you have a spat with your wife, you know what's going on? When you're sleeping on one side of the bed and she's sleeping on the other side of the bed and you don't speak for three days, you know what's going on? What's going on is somebody thinks they're innocent and they think somebody else is guilty. That's what they think. You know what goes on in churches when churches blow up and fragment and split? Somebody picks some little issue to take walking around with a microscope and dropping the, 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 the microscope down on, on uh, some little issue. And all of a sudden, nobody else sees that issue the way they see that issue. And by the way, I'm the one that's innocent. I'm the one that's walking with God. I'm the one that's holy and righteous and perfect. And these people that disagree with me, well, how can you disagree with somebody? That's doing everything right. Can't. Well, what is all of that? It's our failure to see the absolute innocence of Jesus Christ and our failure to see just how wicked and sinful we are and our failure to see our desperate need for a Savior and our failure to see that an innocent Savior died for our sin in our place that we might be made perfectly righteous and that should bring us to our knees and cause us to walk in humility and be the first to seek out reconciliation with those who are struggling. The fourth thing in my conclusion is this. Our biggest problems in life come from our presumed guilt of others and the presumed innocence of ourselves. Say, I don't struggle with that. When's the last time something bad happened in your life and you thought, I don't deserve this? When's the last time you had a flat tire and you said, why is this happening to me? I tied this week. It's the presumption of your innocence. Bad things shouldn't happen to you. Our biggest problems in life come from our presumed guilt of others and the presumed innocence of ourselves. This whole deal of innocence is absolutely critical. Finally, his innocence was necessary because of our guilt, because of our lack of innocence, but because he was declared guilty, we have been declared innocent. Because we have been declared, because he has been declared guilty, we have been declared innocent. That should never create isolation from sinners. That should never generate arrogance. If we get that, we should be the most humble people in the world. But it should leave us in a perpetual state of wonder and awe and move us toward those in sin and even those who have offended us and should move us to humility and mercy and grace and worship and never leave us feeling like we're better than anyone else because our, on our best day, we are all Barabbas. And the only thing to cling to is the fact that Jesus died in our place. Jesus Christ is the Son of God 
Jesus Christ is absolutely and completely innocent. Every one of us is absolutely and completely guilty. An innocent man, the Son of God, died in our place for our sin, and God the Father was satisfied with that. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He sent his Spirit to come live in us, and now we as Barabbas, as Barabbas can live like Jesus because of his Spirit and his presence in us, and we do not have to be guilty. We can be innocent, but that should change everything about us and how we live.